Yes, we are talking about sex this morning in church. Now, I know uh, you guys might have a lot of those thoughts running through your head right now that we just saw conveyed in that opening video. It's been interesting this week as uh, people have been asking me about this sermon this morning. We've been talking about it here uh, with our staff team this week. I've, I've had uh, different reactions and responses when people have heard we're going to be discussing sex in church. Uh, I had one person this week tell me, you know, Jason, it just seems kind of awkward to me to talk about sex in church. And I said, you're telling me my in-laws are going to be watching this this morning. <laughs> you know, I mean... We don't often talk about sex in church, but the reality is, friends, if there's anywhere, I mean, think about this, if there's anywhere where we as Christians should feel free to talk about the reality of sex, it's at church. As the, the famous Bible scholar from Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks, once noted, we should not be ashamed to talk about what God was not ashamed to create. Friends, that's absolutely true. We, we shouldn't be ashamed at all as God's people to talk about this amazing gift that God created for men and women. We need to talk about sex. We should be talking about sex, especially in church, and especially because this topic has become one of the most significant barriers to faith for many in our culture today. We're, we're in week five of this six-week series that we're doing titled, You Lost Me looking at some of the many reasons for why people walk away from the faith, why, why they turn their back on biblical truth and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and friends, one of the most significant reasons why people turn away from faith and the church and Scripture is because of the biblical teaching, the biblical worldview on human sexuality. It's become a significant barrier for many in our culture today. This past week, I was reading a 2019 Christianity Today article titled, Six Reasons Young People Leave the Church. It was uh, an article reporting on a survey of 18 to 29-year-olds, and here in this survey, one of the topics that they asked them about was their attitudes about the church and sex. It was interesting, some of the things that came out in this survey. One of the, one of the survey, survey responses noted that for this age group, the church today is perceived as simplistic and judgmental when it comes to the subject of sex. The, the church's teaching on sex is just too simplistic, too judgmental. One-fifth of this age group reported that they believe the, the church's just-say-no philosophy towards sex is outdated and irrelevant for our technology, pornography-saturated culture today. The church's teachings on sex is outdated and irrelevant for today. The, the report noted that young Christian singles today are often just as sexually active as their non-churched friends. And then this age group often revealed that they can feel regularly judged by the church because of their sexual views and practices. It was interesting reading this survey, this, this very recent survey of impressions of young adults inside and outside the church speaking about what they perceive to be the church's beliefs and teachings on sex. And as I was reflecting on this survey this week, I, I started asking questions like, you know, what are we to think of findings like these? 
are our historic, biblical, Christian beliefs on sex really outdated and irrelevant for today? Maybe, we, maybe we've just gone wrong on our messaging somewhere, right? I mean, maybe we've just done a bad job communicating what the Bible teaches on the issue of sex. So, so, so what are we to say? What are we to say as Christians to a culture today that so often views Christianity as being anti-sex? You know, this is a topic, friends, that we as Christians have to be able to address. We have to be able to speak biblical truth to our culture on this topic. Last week, if you were here or if you watched online, you recall we looked at the question of origins. We, we talked about the debate between the, the philosophical worldview of naturalism, naturalism which says there is no God, there is no supernatural, the, the universe exploded into existence by chance and all of life has evolved out of a whole series of random chance events in the history of our cosmos. This is, this is one perspective on the question of origins. The other option that we looked at is the reality that we are the creation, the handiwork of a designer, a creator God. We are not simply just random chance events, accidents evolved out of slimy algae, but God created us with a plan and a purpose. And friends, I want you to know this morning, it was no coincidence that we covered the question of origins last week before turning to the topic of sex. We did that very intentionally because, as we're going to see this morning, the question of origins is directly related and has profound implications for this entire subject this morning, the topic of sex. I've shared stories over the years about my father, Dr. Ron Carlson, who was a Christian apologist, traveled all over the world, sharing about the truth of Christianity and why we believe what we believe. My father passed away 10 years ago this summer. One of the last apologetic outreach events that he held was on the campus of Duke University. He had been invited to Duke University by a number of Christian campus groups, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, crew, navigators, various Christian groups got together. They invited my dad to hold a series of outreach evangelistic events there. They rented out one of the large lecture halls on campus, and each night they invited students and faculty to attend. And over the course of that week, my dad shared the, the hope of Christianity, the reasons why we believe what we believe as Christians. One of the topics he addressed that week was the question of origins. Where did we come from? How did the universe begin? Are we accidents evolved out of slimy algae or are we the product of a creator God who made us with a plan and a purpose? At the end of that lecture, it was interesting, uh, an individual came up to him, a, a man who he found out was a professor there at Duke University. And this professor came to my dad. He said, Ron, I've been here listening to your lectures all week. I was wondering if you'd be willing to meet me tomorrow morning for breakfast. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of the things you've shared. And so my dad ended up meeting this man the next morning for breakfast. In the course of their conversation, he discovered that this man was an atheist. He, he was a philosophy professor there at Duke University who promoted the naturalistic worldview that there is no God, that we're all the result of a whole series of random chance events. And, and this atheistic, naturalistic philosopher, he, he shared with my father, he said, Ron, I've been listening to your lectures all week. And I was particularly interested in your lecture last night arguing for the reality of a creator God. And he said, Ron, I want you to know, after listening to your lecture last night, I believe everything you said. 
In fact, I, I fully affirm everything you said is absolutely true. The evidence does point to a creator. But then this professor said to my father, he said, but Ron, I'm still going to hold to my atheistic, naturalistic worldview. And my dad was somewhat dumbfounded by this man's response, and so he said to him, he said, well, well why? Why? And the man said, because Ron, it's morally comfortable. It's morally comfortable. And he went on to explain, as long as I believe that I'm nothing more than an accident, an animal evolved out of slimy algae, I can live my life any way I choose. I, I can party, I can do drugs, I can sleep with anyone I want, whenever I want. But then he said to my father, but as soon as I acknowledge the possibility that there's a creator, a God, he says, then I become morally accountable to that God. And he said, Ron, I don't want to be morally accountable to anyone. See, friends, that professor understood more clearly than most why the question of origins matters. Are we just accidents evolved out of slimy algae, or are we the handiwork of a creator God? Today, we, we live in a culture that has, by and large, rejected the biblical revelation of a creator to whom we're morally accountable. Many people in our culture today simply deny God's existence altogether. Others in our culture, even many professing Christians, end up redefining God, fashioning him into their own personal idol. For many today, God is simply a benevolent being whose primary desire is to see each of us live our best lives now. However, we each choose to define that. But he's certainly not a God of judgment. And I want you to notice this morning, friends, both of these positions, whether an outright denial of God or a refashioning of God in our own image, they both end up in the very same place. A relativistic philosophy where there is no absolute truth and men and women become the sole arbiters of truth and morality. We determine what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's moral, what's immoral, what's true or not true. And, and, and with this reality being the case, what we find ourselves in today is a culture where ideas like truth and morality really have become no more significant than picking ice cream flavors. You know, if we were all to, after church today, head up to downtown Lindstrom and go up to Anderson's Ice Cream Shop or go to Gustav's Cafe and, and, and choose ice cream together, right? You guys want to go out to ice cream later, right? All right. So we're all going to go out for ice cream later. But we go up to the ice cream shop and, you know, we, we start picking our personal preferences and, you know, you like strawberry and I like chocolate peanut butter and you like chocolate chip cookie dough and you like mint chocolate chip and you like plain old vanilla and, you know what, it's no big deal, right? Because we're just talking about our own personal subjective preferences. We're just picking ice cream flavors. It's, it's no big consequence. And many people in our world today view truth and morality like ice cream flavors. We, we just kind of pick and choose what works for us, what we prefer, but there's really no big consequence to it, right? 
But friends, think about this. What if topics like truth and morality are not so much ice cream kind of things, but are more insulin kind of things? Let me explain what I mean. What what if you were to go to the doctor tomorrow? You haven't been feeling right, just kind of feeling lousy lately, and so the doctor does some tests, he runs some blood work, and sends you home, and I'm going to call you back in a couple days, and he calls you back in a couple days. And the doctor says to you, you know, Bill, I've got some bad news. We, we did your blood work, we ran your tests, and we discovered that, that you've got a disease, Bill. It's a disease called diabetes. And Bill, from this point forward, for the rest of your life, you're going to need to take a medicine each day, a medicine called insulin to help remedy your condition, to help control your disease. Now, friends, when when Bill gets that diagnosis from the doctor, at this point, Bill doesn't say to the doctor, "Uh, you know, doc, I'm not really a big fan of that insulin stuff, you know? Um, What what if I just try some Tylenol? Or or, or how about that bubblegum cough syrup my mom used to give me? I really liked that. That was good stuff, right? No, we don't do that, right? That, That would be foolish. Why? Because when we're dealing with things like disease and medicine, we don't, have, we don't get to pick and choose what we prefer, what we would like. We have to choose what works, what heals, what remedies our condition. And so it's important that we think about this morning the reality that maybe, maybe what if truth and morality are not so much ice cream kind of things where we get to pick and choose what works for us, but what if they're more insulin kind of things objective truths that are true whether we agree with them or not that we have to simply accept and receive because that's reality. See, friends, if truth and morality aren't issues of personal preference but instead are objective realities that truly matters, then that changes everything, right? Do you see the issue here? And when it comes to the topic of sex this morning, our our culture today says that sex is really no more significant than a trip to the local ice cream parlor. Yeah, you know, you like sleeping with girls. I like sleeping with guys. You're, You're polyamorous. I'm monogamous. You think sex should be reserved for marriage. I think you can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. No big deal, right? We're just talking our own personal preferences. And again, friends, that position totally works if men and women are the sole arbiters of truth. But again, what if there's a creator God? What what if there's a God who made us, a higher authority who has defined truth, who's defined morality, who's given us boundaries for how we're to live in this world, Boundaries that he says, as our creator, lead to life and life abundantly. And to walk within those boundaries is is good and right and fulfilling. And to walk outside of those boundaries is to risk living our lives outside of his will and, and straying into sin and error. See, friends, that worldview question changes everything. Is there a God who made us, who designed us, who has spoken truth into our world? And this is why the Christian worldview is so often at odds with our culture today on the issue of sexuality. 
Because unlike the prevailing views on sex in our culture today and and the ever-shifting whims of pop culture, the Christian worldview is based on timeless, objective, universal truths that are rooted in the very nature and character of God. There is a God. He has spoken. And the only question that matters at that point is, will we trust him and will we obey See, if he is the creator and we are the creation, then that's all that matters. We don't necessarily have to like or agree with what he's revealed as truth. But friends, it's true nonetheless. Your opinion, your preferences are irrelevant if there's a God who has spoken truth into our world, into our lives. And so this morning, I I want us to take a look together at what our creator has revealed to us on the topic of sex. Because God has revealed truth on this issue. Now, of course, we're not going to be able to cover everything related to the, the subject of sex this morning. But, but what I do want to do is I want to outline for us today three really significant fundamental truths about sex so that we can understand the, the big picture, the biblical worldview of what our Creator has both created for us but then has revealed to us about this subject. Truth number one this morning, sex was designed by God with a specific plan and purpose. Sex was designed by God with a specific plan and purpose. We need to look at God's word on this to understand what that plan and purpose was. Let's take a look starting at the teachings of Jesus Christ. What, what, what is our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, the one who John tells us in John chapter 1, remember, was the creator of the entire universe, the Word, the Word who was with God and was God, what does this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have to say to us about his plan for human sexuality? Well, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells us this in verses 4 through 6. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now here, Jesus is referring all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. To the very beginning of time even. To God's creation event where he made the world and he created men and women. And we actually find that account in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, we read this about the creation of men and women and the creation of sex. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now we turn to Genesis chapter 2, a complementary but different account of that same event, okay, same creation event. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, friends, what do we learn about sex from these various passages, these creation accounts of God's design, his plan and purpose for human sexuality? Well, we learn four things. We learn four things. Number one, sex was created by God. Now, that's pretty cool, right? Sex was created by God. Why did God create it? Number two, he created it as an act between a man and a woman. So two distinct genders that God intended to experience this act of sex together. Thirdly, to be performed in the relationship of a lifelong committed marriage relationship. And fourthly, with the intended goals of unity, unity between the husband and wife, and for the sake of procreation. Procreation is the act of creating children. Okay? This was God's plan and purpose. This was God's design for sex, these four things. Now, friends, I want you to think with me for a moment. Do you think that it's any coincidence today that every single one of God's creative purposes for sex is under attack in our culture? Think about that. Every single one of God's created purposes for sex is under attack in our culture today. And that's not a coincidence, friends. God tells us in Scripture that he created two genders, male and female. And yet, what do we see going on in our world today? Gender distinctions are increasingly under attack. Gender today is considered trivial and and literally is being erased from our public consciousness and discourse in our media, in our education system, in our political establishment. Genders are irrelevant, no longer matters. God intended sex for marriage. It was meant for marriage, and yet our culture today increasingly views marriage as outdated and unnecessary. More and more people today are simply skipping out on marriage, choosing to live with one another, cohabitate with one another. No big deal. The institution of marriage is under attack. God tells us that he desired sexual unity to be between a husband and a wife. Uh, An exclusive experience between a married couple. And yet what does our culture tell us today? Today our culture champions unfettered sexual liberty and the exploration of, of every perversion imaginable. That's a good thing according to our culture. God tells us he invented sex for procreation, to to populate the earth, to bring children into the earth. And what does our culture say? Our culture says, hey, kids are great. As long as they're wanted, healthy, and not an inconvenience. And if they're not, they can easily be taken care of through abortion. Every single one of God's created purposes for sex in marriage 
is under assault in our culture today. This is no accident, friends. If you've been with us recently, we've discovered and we've learned the reality that we are not at war with our culture today. This is not a human battle that we're fighting. We are at war, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus tells us in John 8, 44, who is our enemy? Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus in John 10, 10 tells us that the thief, Satan, comes to steal our joy and kill our hope and destroy our souls. Friends, this is a spiritual war that we're engaged in. All of our culture's rejection of God's design for sex ultimately stems from our spiritual adversary who seeks to lead people astray and destroy them, and he does it using the very same lie that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Satan comes to our world today and he says, does God really say? Did did, did God really say that there's only two genders? Did, did God really say that you're only supposed to have sex within a marriage relationship? Did, did God really say that, that sex was intended to, to be experienced between a husband and a wife for the sake of procreation? Did God really say See, friends, our enemy seeks to deceive. He seeks to lie. He seeks to lead us astray. And this leads me to point number two this morning. When we understand these realities, how God designed sex, how he defines sex, and how we have an enemy that is seeking to lie to our culture and deceive our culture about sex, then point number two we need to understand from Scripture is that sexual activity outside of God's design is foolish and rebellious it's foolish and rebellious understand this friends if you're engaged in sexual activity outside of god's design you're a fool and you're a rebel and i say those words friends with all the love in my heart for you because god loves you and god desires for you to walk in faithfulness with his ways But any time, whether you're talking about sex or any other issue, any time we turn our back on God's revealed truth and go our own way, we are living as fools and rebels against God. It's foolish because you've been deceived to think something other than God's best is good. Any time, any time you think something other than God's best is good for you, That's foolishness, friends. And it's rebellious because to say no to God is to set yourself up as God, thinking you know better than him. Now, now none of us go around thinking, I'm God, you know. but But the way we act when we choose to go our way instead of God's way, we are saying to God, yeah, you know, yeah, God, whatever. I'm going to rule my life. I'm going to run my life. I'm going to determine what's best for me and how I'm going to live. Foolishness and rebellion. 
I brought a picture this morning to help illustrate this reality for us. This is one of my favorite places in America, Cape Kiwanda on the Oregon coast. It's a massive sandstone cliffside right on the Pacific Ocean. Two years ago, I was there with my brother, and I took this picture. I thought, man, this is going to be a great sermon illustration someday, right? The, the Oregon DNR has set up this fence because to go past this fence is to literally risk your life. And I thought, you know, that's a great illustration. So I'm going to crawl over the fence, and I'm going to get my picture taken. Friends, was that foolish? Yes. Was it rebellious? Yeah, it was. But what's the big deal? I mean, come on, I'm here today, I made it, no big deal. I mean, you know, literally, I'm like 10 feet away from the side of the cliff. But friends, what if I told you that since taking that picture, I found out that in the last two years, six people have plummeted to their death as the sandstone almost daily erodes and falls 200 feet into the ocean below. Six people in the last two years, dozens in the last 10 years. It's known as the most dangerous place in Oregon today, Cape Kiwanda. Changes your perspective on the picture a little bit, doesn't it? And it's interesting because many people in our world today treat sex just like that warning sign. Well, yeah, yeah Jason, come on. I mean, yeah, sure, God, God has, has defined his norms for us. He's established his boundaries for us, but... Is it really that big of a deal? Friends, God has defined truth for a reason. When we stray outside of God's boundaries for truth and morality, we're living foolish and rebellious lives. Let's look at some of the warning signs God has posted for us in Scripture when it comes to sexuality. Let's start with the teachings of Jesus again. Mark chapter 7. Verses 20 through 23. Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, out of our sinful nature, and they defile a person. Now, I want you to draw your attention to that phrase up towards the beginning, sexual immorality. That's an important word in the Greek. The word is porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography from, porneia. And porneia in the Greek and in the way Jesus uses it, porneia literally refers to any sexual activity outside of God's defined boundaries for marriage. That's what porneia means in the Greek. It literally means every sexual activity outside of God's defined standards for a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship. So homosexuality is porneia, adultery is porneia, incest is porneia, rape is porneia. Anything, any sexual activity outside of God's defined standards is porneia, sexual immorality. And Jesus says to engage in that defiles a person. What does that mean? To be defiled. It means you are unclean. What's the big deal with being unclean? It means you are unholy in the eyes of God. What's the big deal of being unholy in the eyes of God? The big deal is that to be unholy is to be forever separated from our creator. Because anyone who has sin and rebellion 
is defiled and unholy and cannot enter into the presence of our righteous, perfect creator God. It's a big deal, friends. God tells us any sexual activity outside of his defined standards for marriage defiles a person. We, we then turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul says, but sexual immorality, there's that same word again. Porneia, exact same word. Anything outside of God's created standard for marriage, that's what that word means. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. That can also be translated, there shouldn't even be a hint of this among you as God's saints, as God's holy people. Don't let sexual immorality, anything outside of God's standards for sex within marriage, don't let there even be a hint among you, the church. This is improper, improper for God's holy people. Then we turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The author of Hebrews says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral. There's that same word again, porneia, anything outside of God's defined standards for marriage. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Friends, God has posted his warning signs very clearly in his word. He's defined the truth of how sex should be experienced in this world between a man and a woman in a lifelong committed marriage relationship for the purpose of sexual unity between the couple and the ultimate procreation of children. That's God's standard. And he's posted clear warning signs that tell us anything outside of that standard leads to defilement, separates us from our holy creator God. This is serious business, friends. Now, some of you might be here this morning or you might be watching online this morning and you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Jason, man, I've really blown it. I, I mean, I mean if, if this is God's standard and these are the warning signs, I, I've not only crossed that sign and, and leaped that fence, I mean, I'm full-blown jumping off the cliff. And you might think you're too far gone. You, you've been living in foolishness and rebellion. But friends, I want to remind you today, there is nobody too far gone for the grace of God. There is nobody too far gone for the hope of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is filled with incredible stories of men and women who had strayed from God's plans and purposes for sex and ultimately found healing and forgiveness and restoration. King David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba. Rahab, the prostitute, who ultimately became one of the lineage of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. The woman caught in adultery who Jesus touched and blessed and said, go and sin no more. You see, friends, as 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And it's not only about forgiveness of our sins, it's about restoration. Restoration. As 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. Friends, you may have crossed that line. You may have run past God's warning signs. 
You may have been living your life in foolishness and rebellion. Maybe you even came here today living your life in foolishness and rebellion. God says it's not too late if you'll confess and repent and turn to him and start walking faithfully in his ways. You can know the hope of forgiveness and new life in God. Now, friends, we've looked at God's definition for sex. We've looked at the warning signs that he gives us about why and how we go outside of his boundaries for sex. Let's get to the really good stuff now. Because God's word has a lot of really exciting and and terrific things to say and encourage us in when it comes to sex within marriage. Okay, What, What does God's word teach us about sex within marriage? Well, this leads me to truth number three this morning. God designed sex within marriage to be fun. To be fun. What does fun stand for? Number one, fun stands for F, frequent. God wants sex within marriage to be frequent. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking right now. Man, honey, we got to go home and start studying the Bible together a little more. You know what I'm saying? But friends, God created sex, and he tells us, look, sex should be frequent within the marriage relationship. Why? Because sex, have you ever considered this? God created sex as a tool for our sanctification, That's amazing, right? We don't talk about that very often. But God says that's part of his created purpose for sex. It's a tool he gave to husbands and wives to help us grow in our walk with the Lord and to protect us from the temptations of this immoral world we find ourselves in. So God says engage in sex. Do it regularly if you're going to Skip out on sex. Make sure that it's mutually agreed upon and only for a limited time and for the purpose of prayer and then come back together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you. This is awesome. This is Holy Spirit-inspired truth that God conveys to us for our good within our marriages. So God wants sex to be frequent. Number two... He wants sex to be unselfish. Unselfish. In Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 29, the Apostle Paul tells us this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, ladies, you got that? Now men, here's your part. Husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. What's Paul saying here, friends? Paul's saying that, look, if you want to experience fullness and abundance and true joy in your marriage, you need to live self-sacrificially towards one another. Wives, you need to submit to your husbands, just as the church is called to submit to Christ. And so just like each and every one of us here this morning as Christians, our heart's desire should be, I want to serve Christ. I want to honor Christ. I want to be faithful to Christ. Wives, you should wake up every morning starting your day saying, Lord, help me to honor my husband the same way I'm called to honor you. And then husbands, you are called to be like Christ to your wife. And just like Christ literally gave everything in service of the church, laying down his very life for the sake of the church, husbands, you are called to sacrifice in the very same way for your wives. Now, friends, imagine what would happen to your relationship, to your marriage, if both of you embraced this attitude and made this your goal each morning when you started your day. Wives, I'm going to submit to my husbands as I do to the Lord. Husbands, I'm going to lay my life down today for my wife like Christ laid his life down for me. Man, that wouldn't just revolutionize your sexual relationship. It would revolutionize your entire relationship. You want to know where marriages go wrong, friends? Marriages go wrong when one or both spouses take their eyes off of Jesus. And instead of living to honor Jesus and honor my spouse as I seek to honor Jesus, we start looking at our own wants and our own needs and our own desires. We become selfish towards our spouse, thinking that their whole existence is about pleasing me. And that's when a marriage begins to crumble. So God created sex. He defined it for our good. He says, look, I want sex to be frequent in your marriage. I want sex to be unselfish in your marriage. Okay, guys, that means there's going to be times where you're going to lay down your life, your desires, because your wife's not into it, into it in that moment, right? And women, there's going to be times where, like, you're not into it at that moment, but you're going to submit out of love for your husband because you want to honor Christ. But notice, if both of you have that attitude towards one another, I mean, man, what a beautiful thing. You're going to experience true love, true joy, true unity. Thirdly, this morning, God says, look it, I want your sex life in marriage to be frequent, unselfish. And then thirdly, I want it to be naked and unashamed. One of the best verses in the Bible, Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. How cool is this? 
that the whole Bible begins with two naked people in a garden told to populate the earth. I mean, literally, that's how God's story of humanity begins. I'm going to create the world. I'm going to create two naked people. I'm going to tell them to hook up and populate the earth. And that's my good and perfect design for the world. Friends, there should be absolutely no shame when it comes to God's design for sex and marriage. Throughout Scripture, married sex is affirmed and celebrated and encouraged. And this is the hope that we have to hold out to our world today. We, we live in a world today that is literally intimacy-starved. Intimacy-starved and sex-crazed. And the hope that we have to hold out to the world today, and understand this, friends, this is, this is the message that we offer the world. Sex is not the highest end of human experience. You know that? It's not the highest end of human experience. Having a personal relationship with Jesus is. And to know Jesus and the fullness of life that is found in Jesus is better than all the sex in the world. You see, friends, knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus and living in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who together are laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel to honor Christ together and to serve Christ together and advance the gospel together, there is nothing better in this world than that. And that's the good news that we have to offer our world. It's not this endless pursuit of, of sex to try to fill this intimacy desire within us that can only truly be filled by a personal relationship with Christ. It's about pointing out that God has made himself available to each and every person in this world. And if we simply respond by faith to his free offer of love, his free gift of salvation, you can know real intimacy. You don't have to be married to experience intimacy. You can experience the heights of intimacy, whether single or married, in the relationship that's offered to us with Jesus Christ. That's better than any sex, friends. That's the message our world needs to hear today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for revealing your truth to us on the subject of sex. And Lord, while there is so much more that we could have said this morning, I just pray that the, the three foundational truths that we just discussed would be helpful to my friends, helpful to us here, helpful to those watching online this morning, that we would both champion your vision of sex for humans, humanity, Lord, within the context of a marriage relationship, that we would celebrate that vision of sex, that we would contend faithfully for that vision in a culture that is chasing after all kinds of false versions of sexuality, looking for meaning, looking for intimacy, looking to, to fill that longing in their heart that can only ultimately be filled by you. And so, Lord, help us as your people to live faithfully in your ways and to champion your truths and to point people to the greatest end of all, to know you, to have a personal relationship with you, to experience true intimacy in the context of a daily walk with you. There's nothing better than that, Jesus. And so we thank you for that amazing gift that you've offered us. And I pray, God, that no one, no one here, no one watching, might miss out on knowing you personally and inviting you into their heart 
and experiencing forgiveness and healing and fullness, all that comes with living with you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you today and have a terrific week. We'll see you soon. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.